Insight, innovation, transformation. Welcome to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Visit us online at changehealthcare.com. Hello, everyone. Today is February 11th, 2021, and welcome back to the Change Healthcare Capital Connection Podcast. I'm Deanne Kasim, and with me today, as usual, are Angela Evat and Steve Brennan. Hello, Angela and Steve. How are you today? Hi there. I'm good. It's great. Thanks, Deanne. Great. Thank you both for being with me. I'm pleased to introduce our very special guest today. Jen Kovic-Bordnick is Chief Executive Officer of the eHealth Initiative, also known as eHi. Jen is a healthcare industry leader focused on digital health, quality, social determinants of health, privacy, and innovative solutions to transform care. As CEO of the eHealth Initiative and Foundation, Jen leads a team of experts conducting thought leadership, education, and advocacy. EHI builds coalitions of senior executives, researchers, and public policy experts to promote best practices in public policy. Focus areas include virtual care, privacy, social determinants of health, artificial intelligence, payment models, and chronic care. Jen currently serves as project investigator for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation grant developing consumer privacy framework for health data. Also, I should mention that Change Healthcare is an eHealth Initiative member. Jen, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Great. So can you tell us and our audience a little bit about your career journey? What led you to want to work in healthcare in the first place and brought you to where you are today? Well, I'm one of those people who actually fell into healthcare. I was never actually making a conscious decision to go into it. Um, after undergrad, I had a presidential fellowship at the George Washington University in the early 90s and um, ended up doing my fellowship with GW Hospital and Medical Center in DC. And I just really loved the healthcare community and being a part of it. So I was there for a few years. Spent a few years working at the National Committee for Quality Assurance, traveling around the country, looking at health plans, worked for a few tech companies during the dot-com era, some that failed, some that succeeded, um, and eventually turned my attention back to eHealth Initiative. And I thought I would stay for a year or two, but you see how that worked out. Um, it actually kept my attention. And, and one of the reasons eHi is such a great ideal company to work for is because the topics that we work on are really ever-changing. Um, it's a community of executives from across the spectrum of healthcare. It's really a thought leadership group. And depending on what the critical issues are of the day, um, that's what we work on. And we get to speak with policymakers and experts. Um, and as you mentioned, I'm doing a lot of work right now on privacy, virtual care, and social determinants. And last but not least, I'm a native Washingtonian. Now a Marylander, so I really love DC and all things politics. So delighted to be here. Great, that is quite the story. First of all, it's very rare to find a native Washingtonian. This is such a transient area. This that's great, and I definitely can relate. Many of us fell into some aspect of healthcare when we perhaps didn't think we'd ever be there. So thanks for sharing your story with us. Sure. So where we last left off, let's see, we did our after the election uh, recap the end of last year, and here we are at the Biden administration first 100 days where the new president has said his first 100 days will be focused on the pandemic, the economy, climate change, trade relationships, and immigration. 
that's a lot to bite off on, um, but certainly we've seen already they've hit the ground running and the biggest focus has involved fixing both the pandemic and public health infrastructure and also economic recovery. Um, front and center, of course, is vaccine rollout, as well as the data, information system, supply chain, and staffing infrastructure needed to support this. It's amazing, but you know, vaccine rollout in and by itself is not just about vaccine supply, it's about so much more. Uh, we'll plug for our most recent Policy Connection podcast that we recently did with Haney Torson. Uh, we focused on some key challenges on the vaccine rollout at both the federal and state levels. So I would uh, welcome our listeners to check that out if you haven't already. But to focus on where we are today, uh, I know that there is a lot of moving parts to what the administration has already done and what they're trying to do. So, Jen, would love to get your perspective on what is going on at the current federal level? What do you think of, of what the administration has announced thus far? And you know, where do you see things going? Sure, I'm happy to kick us off. So, you know, I think we all recognize that the initial rollout um, left something to be desired. Um, but I would say, you know, one kind of silver lining of the weak initial federal um, response was that the private sector really took off in terms of creating solutions to address the pandemic. And we saw a lot of companies um, really doing some innovative things around healthcare. And we saw adoption rates for telehealth um, skyrocket. Um, we've really been tracking the private sector activities and best practices since you know January of last year and documenting it and, and um, trying to figure out what was going on there. Um, what I would say is I would say it's um, you know reassuring to see some old faces, you know, Andy Slavitt and others who we know have really dealt with these crises before and 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 jump in and and um, start to address them. And I think that um, you know certainly there are a lot of issues that um, still need to be addressed. But it's nice to see a, a strong federal response now with this new administration coming in. Um, one area I think that's been identified as critical where we you know and really, you know, a light has been shown on this because of the pandemic is the health disparities issue. And specific as it relates to health IT, I think we see this kind of glaring digital divide right now occurring specifically in vaccine distribution, actually. Um, and I think we've started to see some solutions to address this, but this is gonna really need to be a critical piece of the solution if we're gonna try to stamp out COVID. I could not agree with you more. As a personal aside, I'm now on day six of trying to help my parents find uh, vaccine appointments in the state of Maryland, and it definitely is challenging. And my folks are no stranger to technology, so um, I can only imagine what people that don't have access to technology or perhaps don't have the resources to really go to four different sites a day and search for appointments are really struggling with. Right. Right. It's very difficult. And I think as you know, I've had the same experience with my parents. And again, I think we're fortunate because, um, you know, people who are more tech savvy are able to get the appointments. Um, but, you know, think about I mean, we're in a much more urban area and you think about the rural areas out there that don't even have broadband, um, you know, where it's really hard to make these connections and get people signed up. And um, it's a real weakness in the system right now. And I think the other thing that's been a real problem is, you know, the infrastructure for the public health around the country. It's just, you know, really revealed how weak it is 
Um, and I think the pandemic has just really shown, you know, how underinvested these systems have been over the last two decades. Um, you know, we have, you know, in Maryland and other states, certainly where they were doing things on Excel sheets and paper, um, suddenly having to kind of ramp up this tremendous response and, and um, it's been tough. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Uh, I know we were pleased to see something pass in the December congressional package that directs HHS to look at using interoperable data standards to build out the future of the public health IT infrastructure. Uh, and so we are definitely excited to see that come to fruition this year. Um, it's one thing, as you know, of course, to have the legislation directing agencies to do it. Um, it's another to actually put the pen to paper and create a plan and start making things happen. So more to come on that. Yeah, good to see. One of the things that you mentioned, and I think it's so important, not only for EHI, but you know, other groups and definitely all of EHI's members is the importance of that public-private partnership. Um, mm -hmm. no, no sector, no public sector organization, no private sector organization can really do it by themselves. And I'm so excited to see other companies step up. You know, some of the things that we've been working here at Change Healthcare on has been using our data solutions and partnering with academics, such as we partnered with Carnegie Mellon's Delphi Group and came out with the COVID CAS dashboard. Um, we're launching a vaccine passport credential where individuals can download their vaccine credentials, get a QR code, which is all secure on their own phone and share that where needed, perhaps for travel or other uses. And like you said, public health infrastructure, we've been involved in some of the policy development with Duke Margolis on that. So of all these moving parts, I know other EHI organizations have already been doing some things. You know, what are some highlights of what other EHI members are working on that stands out in your mind, Jen, or even some things that EHI as a group is doing? Yeah, I also just want to give you a shout out on the vaccine passport, which I just was reading about this morning, actually, um, coincidentally enough, and just a really neat um, service for people. So um, kudos on that. Um, we've seen a lot of public-private partnerships. I think um, certainly with the vaccine rollout now, it's nice to see organizations like uh, CVS and Walgreens, groups that are engaged with eHealth Initiative, really helping with the distribution and um, moving things up, you know, taking, sharing that burden with um, healthcare organizations and public health organizations, I think is gonna really help the rollout improve significantly. Um, we've heard a lot and done a lot of programming and sharing with um, executives, work around remote patient monitoring, virtual care, um, using analytics, you know, we have been studying AI and analytics for, you know, two decades, and now we're doing it for, you know, using our powers for good and really identifying and addressing communities that are at risk for COVID. I mean, we can use all of these incredible tools to mine this data and find people who are significantly at risk and get them into programs and help them, um, first of all, you know, be identified, tested, um, and treated, which is something I think we can all work on. Um, the other thing I really want to mention is, you know, we talk a lot about virtual care and everybody's been highlighting uh, telehealth. And, and I, I just want to make the distinction of something else that we've really seen in terms of virtual care is the difference between this asynchronous and the synchronous virtual care. A lot of focus has been on the live video streams or virtual care or telehealth piece. 
Um, but we're actually seeing a lot happening in terms of asynchronous virtual care tools. So by that, I mean um, patients being able to email or text their providers, um, you know, logging into these portals and making appointments for vaccines or the doctor's office, um, you know, different types of tools and apps that are really, um, we're seeing a lot of adoption right now. And consumers are moving online in a way we haven't seen before. Um, and I think this is significant. I agree with you. And I think that is such an important distinction um, because first of all, not everybody has bandwidth as we know to accommodate the true audio video, but there's other things that can be done that can be done simply with an app or through um, a telephone call or even a text message. So I think that's really important to highlight. Yeah. Looking forward to where Congress is going to go, um, we know they're going towards another relief package. We know that President Biden has floated a pretty comprehensive one to the folk uh, to the tune of $1.9 trillion. Um, of course, Republicans offered something that was uh, a lot less than that. And it looks like we are now headed to the reconciliation process which um, I won't go into all the wonkiness behind that because there's a lot of Senate rules and uh, reasons, but basically it means that anything that they pass through reconciliation has to be directly related to budget, uh, nothing that is not related to budget or, or monetary amounts, and that it only will take a simple majority in the Senate to pass instead of the usual 60. So in essence, it would be filibuster proof. A uh, lot of sausage making going on in the House right now to put together language from that. I know I'm struggling just to keep up with all the bills and policies that they're announcing, it seems like on an hourly basis. And of course, the Senate right now is a little busy with the impeachment trial. But, you know, definitely uh, some exciting prospects for legislation that can help move the needle on um, on healthcare, that can help with the economic fallout from the pandemic. You know, what are some of your thoughts when you think about what Congress is working on right now? What are some of the things that, that you hope will come out of this? I think, you know, there are really two areas of health policy we're going to see this year. Um, COVID and then everything else through a COVID lens. Um, and I don't think much else is going to get, um, you know, happen this year other than COVID. A um, couple of things. I think that... Um, and there's so much going on right now, but a couple of things that we're really focused on um, around the virtual care issue, uh, you know, getting these um, Medicare telehealth reimbursement waivers, making them permanent and making sure there aren't restrictions. Um, this is a really big concern and issue with our members. Um, the other thing that's coming up a lot is a lot of concern about, you know, right now there's a lot of waivers and the ability to work across states. Um, and this provider license portability. And that's another um, really big issue, I think, that that's gonna come up. And, you know, as COVID starts to um, hopefully decline and, and things go a little bit back to how they were before pre-COVID, um, I think there's gonna be a desire to keep all this flexibility um, in terms of reimbursement and access to care across state lines. And I think that that's going to be a really important legislative issue that we're going to have to push for, because I think that there are uh, financial incentives pushing against that. So I think that's going to be a big issue. And then the other thing I want to just bring up is the privacy issue, which is really 
a major focus area for us as well. And I think we've seen a lot of concern and issues with, um, and particularly consumers starting to understand this, that um, a lot of data is being collected around COVID right now, and not all consumers are aware of what happens with that data. And this is all related to not necessarily data covered by HIPAA, but things that are not covered by HIPAA. So all of those apps and things that you put information into, personal information into, um, that may not be protected by HIPAA. And I think so there's kind of going to be another, a second look at um, privacy, and it's going to be really important um, that we start to address that. And I know that there's not federal legislation on privacy right now, but I think we've seen in the last year you know, with all the concerns around Facebook and access to and, and how um, data can be used um, both by organizations, but third parties that get access to that data. I think that's going to reemerge its um, ugly head and we're going to have to really start to think about what we want it, that to be in the future. So I think that those are two important things. And then one that I'll just piggyback on that you mentioned earlier is the public health funding. Um, you know, the weaknesses in the public health system are significant. And um, I think we've really got to take a second look, a third look, a fourth look, um, and make sure that there's funding there for these reporting systems um, so that we're not caught off guard next time. Could not agree more. You know, on the privacy thing, it seems it, it actually has been two years now that I know um, we here at Change Healthcare have been tracking various legislation, both on the Senate side and the House side. And we've had many conversations, not only within EHI, but other organizations as well. And then last year, we thought something was going to move. And then we had this thing called the pandemic, which, of course, sidetrack everything. Um, and now we have, to your point, a whole conversation around privacy vis-a-vis data that's being used for the variety of COVID use cases. Um, so I do think that that is going to come to a head this year because we really are in a situation where we've got states doing a patchwork of privacy laws, which Angela and Steve can address um, in, the, in the state section of our broadcast. Yeah. But the, the other thing is, you know, where does this fall in data outside of HIPAA? And I've even heard some policy wonks talk about the need for a, a new federal agency, a healthcare data agency, which is an interesting concept, um, particularly vis-a-vis -vis all the money we've spent uh, to date on the pandemic and will continue to spend. But, you know, I think it just shows the need that we have this, this black hole, if you will, of data that's being used outside of HIPAA and there really is no governance for it. Well, our, our initial recommendation in the framework that we released this week was for some sort of self-regulatory body to be formed initially with accountability, you know, linked to the FTC. So I think that, um, you know, certainly there are so many different ideas out there about how to work with this right now. One thing I think COVID has really shown is um, consumers, you know, are just putting their information into these systems and clicking accept because they want to get signed up for their vaccine or they want to get um, tested or um, there's so much online information sharing going on. And we've seen I don't want to say people kind of throw their concerns about privacy out the window, but <laughs> be less concerned about their privacy and more concerned with the urgency of getting their care um, or testing results or, or whatever it might be. So I really want to see kind of some new data in terms of where consumers are right now on privacy, um, because I think I think we've, we're seeing some shifting there right now. And it'll be interesting to see um, where consumers are at. Mm -hmm. 
Yep, completely agree. In fact, um, and maybe this is just a, a person over 40 issue, but I know when you look at your phone and sign up for these apps, it's really almost impossible to read the privacy disclosure on your little phone screen. So just <laughs> something yeah. to think about. <laughs> It's it's not just the policy, it's the usability and readability of it, right? Well, I mean, to your point, there isn't really anywhere to go right now. There's no federal, um, you know, one-stop shop that you can really go to and, and complain or that's overseeing this entire process and enforcement. Certainly, there are different arms and it's happening at the state level, which I'm sure um, your colleagues are going to talk about. But um, it's a patchwork approach and um, we really need it's not going to work very long that way. Well, yeah. <laughs> completely agree. Not to mention the cost of compliance for healthcare entities that do business across state lines. Um, it's globally. Yeah, I mean, I think globally we look at the EU and particularly organizations like Change and other, you know, global companies are having to adapt a couple of different types of solutions, and it just doesn't make sense. You're listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Insight, innovation transformation. Learn more at changehealthcare.com. So that is a great segue to Angela and Steve who are going to give us some highlights from the states and talk about the important issues that are being discussed there. So guys, take it away. Great. Thanks, Dan. Um, And great notes, Jennifer. And I think you'll see that a lot of what you've highlighted at the federal level is uh, a bit sort of trickling down or bubbling up. Uh, at the state level, and we'll go over that. But um, since most state uh, legislative sessions just started last month, um, Steve and I thought we would discuss what key themes we're seeing in states in terms of policy introductions. You know, what is their legislative focus right now? Um, but before we do, um, let's let's give a quick overview of what state sessions typically look like and how this is a bit different due to the p- pandemic and how that might impact Uh, some of the legislation that we're seeing. So uh, typically most state sessions start early in January. So just last month and end around April or May. Um, The early part of the session, we usually are dedicated to finalizing their budgets. um, And Steve will talk a little bit about what we are seeing in budgets and introducing new bills. Um, For most states, we'll usually see bills move around mid-session and we will know which bills are likely to survive or beat the finish line uh, around that time. So Steve, why don't you tell folks um, how this is a little bit different due to the pandemic? Sure, so thank you, Angela. So uh, you know, as, you, as you noted, uh, the states have, have begun their sessions. Actually, only two states have uh, not yet started. That's Florida and Louisiana. They start in, in March and April. Uh, the, the interesting thing is despite the pandemic, uh the most of the states are conducting their legislative sessions in person in fact 36 states are in person um with with another uh, 11 states that are doing a a combination or hybrid of virtual and in person sessions so uh that's a sort of an interesting uh note there um uh, but but having said that there's been a lot of changes most of the, state, the sessions have started later uh, a number of states uh uh began their session uh sort of and then and then took a pause and will come back uh other states have have decided to pause in uh, indefinitely so there's definitely some dynamics there in terms of the flow of a legislative session 
Uh, again, as Angela mentioned, most of the states are planning to, to adjourn uh, you know, in the middle of the year. Uh, there's some that, are, that run longer, uh, but it's very uncertain in terms of, you know, if you know, depending on how the pandemic uh, moves forward, whether whether there will be, um, you know, the majority will finish their sessions. The other thing that's that's really been interesting to observe is is there's really a subtext of conflict that has arisen over the last several months in the sense that you have governors and legislatures uh, in direct conflict over over policymaking, uh, where, where you've had uh, governors having to act unilaterally uh, over the last several months to address the pandemic and really taking the power out of the or the gavel away from the, the legislature. So there's there's a subtext there of conflict that will have a, an impact on policymaking in most of the states going forward. And then, of course, you have another subtext of conflict between the public and the legislature and the government in the sense that most all of the uh, state capitals are closed to the public. Uh, so 20 are, are fully closed and another 18 are, are open, but with pandemic restrictions. So there's a real concern on the part of the public to not be able to have an input to attend sessions and, and votes and so, things, so forth. So uh, there, there's, those, are, those are dynamics that we'll see play out. Uh, hard to say what, what impact they will have, but it certainly affects the, the, the political environment. Great, thanks, Dean. Um, so let's jump into what states are focusing on, at least at the beginning of the session. And I think, Jennifer, you put it pretty nicely and said there's basically two themes here, one COVID and two other policies through the lens of COVID. And I think we're seeing that uh, at the state level. Um, state legislators and governors are really continuing to introduce legislation and other actions to address COVID. Um, you know, we saw a lot of executive orders early in the pandemic, um, and states are continuing to extend most of those uh, executive orders, specifically around healthcare. They've been related to grace periods for certain payer provider reporting to the states or, or other obligations that are typically time sensitive that have been extended. Um, we also saw executive orders around co-payments and waivers um, where these were required or even encouraged um, um, where payers were waiving co-pays and typically this is around COVID testing and treatment uh, and some for telehealth. Um, state legislators are still focusing on COVID testing. Um, they have looked at increasing coverage or eliminating some cost sharing to ensure access um, and then to your point uh, earlier in the conversation around COVID vaccines, you know, state legislators are looking at COVID vaccines. Specifically, we've seen over 75 bills thus far uh, addressing in some way former fashion COVID vaccines. And typically these bills have addressed vaccine allocation phases. So what population gets the vaccine first, second, and third? Um, and they're also addressing things like management and distribution, um, including, you know, permitting certain vaccine sites. We're seeing massive sites um, at large uh, conference venues and other venues. Um, and then legislators are also looking at expanding the types of providers that can administer the vaccine, well, at least temporarily to uh, increase access there. Um, we're also seeing roughly 20 states introducing legislation 
that will either explicitly prohibit the state or employees from mandating the vaccine or at least prohibiting employee discrimination based off of vaccine status. Um, as it relates to the conversation around data privacy, we are seeing this come through also in a COVID lens where states are introducing um, data privacy bills related to COVID health data and how that can be used or disclosed. And this typically is coming around contact tracing or testing data and now um, vaccine data. Um, for example, we saw uh, bills pop up in Texas and New York and Washington uh, are just a few that were introduced this legislative session. Um, so I'm gonna turn it over to Steve so he can talk a little bit about budget, budget challenges uh, at the state level. Sure, so uh, the state budget uh, environment has been, um, it moved from, I guess what I would refer to as kind of crisis mode from early in, in 2020 and, and through the first half of 2020 to really more of a uncertainty mode uh, as we move into 2021. Obviously, the pandemic continues to move forward, but but many of the state's uh, revenue forecasts improved in the second half of 2020 uh, to the point where they have become more manageable. Uh, they're still, uh, in many cases, negative, but the, many of the, the states are not in a crisis mode like they were uh, middle of, the, of 2020. Having said that, uh, just about every state has signals an intent to use reserve funds to help offset uh, lack of revenue in 2021 uh, in varying degrees. The, the, the states that have the largest expectation of reserve funds uh, allocation are California, obviously uh, nearly $9 billion, Massachusetts, $1.3 billion, uh, Connecticut, $1.9, and Washington, $3 billion. So those are those are the bigger states in terms of the amount of revenue they're going to they're going to offset with reserve funds. Now, again, going to back to the notion of uncertainty, uh, what transpires in terms of a federal uh, COVID relief package will also uh, potentially improve the, the fiscal environment for the states, depending on how much is targeted support to state and local governments uh, operations, as well as uh, increases in Medicaid funding to help. Um, offset the, the increased caseload as a result of the economy. Uh, so, so there's a lot, there's a lot at play. Uh, and I think that will be a major focus of all the legislatures in the first half of their sessions to try to get a handle on the revenue picture and, and be able to um, balance the budget and then focus on policy. Great. Thanks, Dean. So we talked a mm -hmm. little bit earlier with Jennifer, um, around telehealth uh, at the federal level and we're certainly seeing that at the state level as well mm -hmm. um you know we're states are looking to um make permanent some of the executive orders that they put in place earlier to increase access to telehealth as it relates to states jurisdiction on telehealth we see their activity in three areas in medicaid on the private side and around licensure um, as it relates to Medicaid, states are looking to expand the types of providers that can perform telehealth um, and the types of locations that uh, a provider or a patient is allowed to be within for these telehealth encounters. Um, states are also removing some of the barriers to telehealth access 
for example, some states had uh, a requirement around initial in-person visits. Um, they're also looking at cost sharing um, or allowing for providers to charge a facility fee uh, to recoup some of that technology um, uh, cost with implementing telehealth. And uh, like Jennifer noted, we're also seeing uh, states look at audio only and remote patient monitoring around telehealth and their policies. Um, yep. We're actually seeing over 230 bills in almost every state um, for, for telehealth. And I think this is a very sort of uh, across the aisle um, policy where both, both parties would like to see some movement. Yeah, I just wanted to jump mm -hmm. in. I think that's really true. I think, you know, the concern amongst a lot of the providers is, you know, again, worry that this is going to get turned back at some point. So, um, you know, instead of jumping all the way in, <laughs> they're waist up right now and, you know, worried about it getting pulled back. So I think, you know, the more that states can do to reassure providers that this isn't going away and make these more permanent um, changes. I think that it's going to be better for patients. Yeah, and we're definitely seeing a lot of movement there. I mean, just uh, last session as well. Um, on the private side, we're also seeing states look at uh, coverage and payment parity. Um, this is where if a service is covered uh, in person, it must also be covered if, can, if it can be appropriately provided via telehealth. And um, they're also looking at paying at a requiring payment at the same, same rate. Um, for example, we saw this in Washington, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, and others that are um, that have introductions right now. And then Jennifer, you mentioned the licensure issue, um, and most states have jurisdiction on licensure at the state level, but they understand that this can be a hindrance to telehealth access. Um, and some states are considering joining licensure compacts um, to make uh, a license more portable to other states and really allowing for expedited licensure if a provider is licensed in another state in good standing. I am curious. So you are seeing a lot of movement on that in terms of them joining these compacts because that would be welcome news, I think. For sure. Yeah, we're mm -hmm. definitely seeing a lot more movement on that than past sessions uh, where we haven't seen uh, movement. And in, in licensure compacts, what we really wouldn't think of because there is sort of the physician's licensure compact, the nursing, but I think this is going beyond um, those two practice or practitioners uh, to other areas where telehealth providers really are, are working across state lines. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to Steve, and maybe you can touch a little bit on what states are doing around health equity and social determinants of health. Yes, thank you, Angela. So uh, I think, and Jennifer, you mentioned this earlier in your in your discussion as a as a priority, certainly at the national level, and we know that the Biden administration has really sought to emphasize equity as it as it across all of its policy uh, proposals, but I think especially around the pandemic and vaccine programs. And uh, just to note, the CDC reports that uh, of the vaccines that have been distributed so far, only 4% have gone to black, uh, the black Americans and only 5% uh, to individuals who uh, self-identify as Latino. So it's, there's a real 
gap there. And I think uh, we've seen that the issue of racial and ethnic disparities in health really moved to the to the forefront of priority, um, not only at the national level, but at the state level. And uh, just a quick scan uh, yesterday, there were more than 300 bills introduced across all the state legislatures uh, this year uh, that would address uh, health disparities in one form or fashion. And uh, they, they include really focused around vaccine collection, data collection uh, and distribution, but also new care models, uh, medical education and workforce, healthcare workforce training, uh, maternal and infant mortality studies and commissions. So there's a whole range of policy proposals that are being considered to really try to get at and try to kind of come up with solutions to really bring equity to uh, to be not, you know, to be across the board for everyone. So I think that's going to be an issue that uh, will probably be addressed in some form, uh, certainly just by virtue of the number of bills uh, in, in all of the states. And then it'll be really a matter of uh, whether they're tangible in terms of uh, solutions. And, and I think the, the, the vaccine uh, data collection, uh, one of the one of the issues that's arisen is that many many providers are just listing unknown when uh, they they aren't sure or or the individual's not providing a racial uh, uh, category when they're receiving a vaccine. So we don't really know the full extent to of the disparity in terms of the vaccine uh, rollout. So that's going to be a, a big issue as we go forward. Uh, and again, it, it does cover a lot of the spectrum in terms of policy issues. That's actually a really big issue that has been pointed out in a couple of different reports about reporting is that, you know, mm -hmm. there is really no standard for that. You know, you know, clinicians are um, notably for good reason, you know, don't want to make that decision on behalf of a patient and they're uncomfortable sometimes asking and patients don't always want to put that information down. So it's very hard to track that. Um, so I think that that's one major issue in terms of the reporting. But the other is this historical distrust. Um, we've done a ton of work with tribal communities, um, you know, just getting a lot of these folks into these vaccination programs is going to be incredibly difficult. And while I hope that these programs work at the state level, I, I hope that they're able to overcome that in some way. But I think that's going to be a real barrier to many of these programs. Absolutely. Great. Well, this has been a really good conversation. And Jen, I thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Angela, Thanks. Steve, really good highlights from the States. To our listeners, thank, thank you, you for listening to our conversation today. And don't forget to check the show notes for links to resources and contact information related to today's show. And stay tuned to the Change Healthcare podcast for more shows covering the healthcare and health IT topics that you care about. I'm Deanne Kassim, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Mask up and stay well. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. Don't forget to check the show notes for more information on today's topic. Insight, innovation, transformation. Learn more at changehealthcare.com.